You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you on this 8th day of February 2013, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan. Welcome to episode 257 of the Corbett Report podcast, Lies the FBI Told Me. Now, I am sometimes contacted by concerned correspondents out there who wonder if I am worried about my own personal health and safety, given that I often speak up against the powers that shouldn't be, and specifically a lot of the alphabet soup agencies that unfortunately wield so much power in our modern war on terror, big brother surveillance state paradigm. And while that is certainly not a laughing matter and not one to be taken lightly in the wake of the suicides of people like Gary Webb and Terry Yakey and the DC Madam and many others that we've talked about on this podcast in the past, at the very least it can be documented that I have put my personal health and well-being on the line for the sake of this podcast, if for no other reason than last night in preparation for this podcast episode I forced myself to watch this. And for those who are listening at home rather than watching the video version of this podcast, I am holding in my hands J. Edgar, that putrid piece of historical revisionism that was excreted out by that Hollywood sycophant Clint Eastwood, and which seeks to really reify J. Edgar Hoover and the institution, the monstrosity that he helped to create in the 1920s, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Department, uh, the, the Bureau of Investigation as it was known then, a rather modest subsection of the Department of Justice when Ed, uh, J. Edgar Hoover took it over in 1924, but which quickly uh, and under his guidance expanded into this, as I say, sprawling monstrosity of a bureaucracy that we know today. And it's, uh, well, there's a lot to be said about this disgusting display of revisionism that uh, Clint Eastwood excreted out, as I say. But uh, uh, to its credit, I suppose we can say that it, at very least, the very least, glancingly touched on some of the key aspects of the J. Edgar Hoover story, if only in the most tangential of ways. And uh, and it does have all of the elements there, at any rate. His his homosexuality, his cross-dressing, both of which obviously played into the blackmail that he was under from various groups, including, of course, the mafia for many years. But also, uh, for example, the, the, some of the underhanded and illegal and uh, subterfuge that he used to gain and uh, grow his political power and influence in the early years of the Bureau, and of course that he used to maintain power over that Bureau for well nigh half a century. A staggering amount of time, and as I'm sure people know, he stayed on well past the mandated 65-year retirement age. And how did he do that? Well, it was because of the remarkable leverage that he had over president after president, through the use of his illegal wiretapping techniques and other underhanded illegal techniques for gathering information on the political class. This is not something that's disputable. This is not something that people speculate about. This is something that has long been well-known and documented. So for one instance of that, we'll turn to a rather mainstream documentary that makes this very point, that it was this type of leverage that made sure that J. Edgar Hoover was at the bright burning center of the American empire for half a century. Hoover had developed a reputation as a bully who would not hesitate to destroy lives and careers to get what he wanted. Above all, Hoover inspired fear. Hoover had information on everybody, especially the politicians. This was his way of controlling everybody. 
He knew how to do that. He was an expert in that area. He made it his business to collect gossip, so no one wanted to fool with him because they were afraid an FBI investigation would begin and they had become exposed. Hoover simply played upon their weaknesses, their skeletons in their closet. They said he had a black book on everybody. Even when he went before the Congress, he would reach into his pocket, take out his little black book and just beat it like that on the table. And boy, and once they saw that, he got everything he wanted. Neither the Congress nor the executive called him to account. He claimed he had secrets on politicians and he used that as a weapon. That is no different than a mafia boss, in my opinion. Now, whereas that clip is somewhat short on specifics, some of the examples of how Hoover used his political leverage are by now well known, including his sway over President Roosevelt and the uh, the love affairs of his lesbian wife, for example, or uh, the transcripts of the various lovemaking sessions that the FBI managed to wiretap uh Kennedy uh, in, John F. Kennedy, even before he was president or a presidential nominee or anything of the sort. Um, so it, Hoover's personal files were voluminous and completely secret and, of course, shredded as soon as he died so that no one will ever know exactly what they contained. But uh, certainly there was a lot of information that he used as political leverage against even presidents. Yes, ooh, the president is not necessarily the top of the U.S. government, is not necessarily the end-all and be-all. Who would have thunk it? Well, uh, as I say, by now some of this is uh, well-known, or at least should be, and is even admitted in the, the types of Hollywood movies that come along attempting to make a god out of this this uh, this putrid man, really, that attempted to uh, to rule over the American populace with an iron fist for half a century, uh, despite his own gambling addiction and uh, various uh, well persuasions uh, on the in personal matters that he condemned in public life, etc. But that is not really the heart of the issue, I think, when it comes to the FBI. That is just the story of J. Edgar Hoover. And while it is fascinating, and while I hope we will cover that in more detail specifically in the future on this podcast, today we're looking at the bigger picture of the FBI and how it has grown and been fostered and thrived and survived all these many decades and how it has become the institution that it is today. And in order to understand that, we have to understand a key fact, not only about the FBI as an institution, but really about every government agency. And is that is simply the fact that these agencies receive their 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 reason for existence, their very their very justification for being, from the types of events that they claim to be trying to prevent. So whenever there is a spectacular terror attack, of course every government agency gains in power and in presumed authority to be able to prevent the next attack. So every failure is in fact a massive gain for the system at large. And this is something that if Hoover did not necessarily directly realize and, 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 and consciously plan in the early days of the FBI, it is something that he very much worked towards in the later days of the FBI, quite specifically. And that has to do with the creation of boogeymen. This, again, should not be much of a surprise to people who have understood how the war on terror paradigm functions, but this was well understood decades and decades and decades before most of the public ever heard of false flag terrorism, let alone experienced it. 
And this goes back to really the birth of the Bureau of Investigation and its uh, its creation, uh, its eventual uh, formulation into the FBI through the original Red Scare back in 1919 during the Bolshevik Revolution and the scare that it caused in even in the United States. And it was on that initial wave of panic and hysteria, including some terrorist attacks that took place in the United States at that time, that J. Edgar Hoover, an ambitious young Washingtonian, managed to ride his way up that political ladder into that position at the head of the Bureau of Investigations, which, as I say at the time, was a small subset of the DOJ. And it was through boogeyman after boogeyman that the FBI continued to gain and accrue power and influence until it became what it is today. So we can trace this, for example, through uh, the Great Depression and the uh, era of the Mafia, the Chicago Mafia, which, of course, was brought about through the Prohibition, which actually made the Mafia into what it was. But that being what it was, the FBI managed to garner some of the uh, some of the praise and adulation of the public from taking down some of these mobsters. And the, uh, the death of John Dillinger and other such things loom large in the legacy of J. Edgar Hoover, at least the one that was meant for public consumption. So these are the types of antics that uh, that really grew the FBI and its place in an American mythos. And it was uh, on the back of events, for example, like the Lindbergh baby kidnapping, that the FBI was able to implement the Lindbergh law and to be able to centralize a database of fingerprints of criminals and suspects from all across the country that have been taken by police departments all around the country and to set up a new criminal uh, lab to investigate forensic evidence and to modernize itself and aggrandize itself and grow its budget to become the largest law enforcement and the most sophisticated law enforcement force in the world. And of course, that was exactly what Hoover was aiming at. So it was just convenient that these types of massive problems kept coming up to enable him to justify the ever-growing budget and staff of the FBI. Helped along in no small part by the public relations office of the FBI, which was uh, all the while illegally using taxpayer money to promote itself and its own, uh, its own people, and of course J. Edgar himself and his own mythos. But that being what it was, again, it was on the back of all of these terror scares and uh, and other types of boogeymen that came along from time to time that the FBI continued to grow and continued to take on more and more power. And so it was that, for example, by the time of the 1960s, it was a well-established pattern that the FBI was constantly looking for subversive groups and constantly trying to infiltrate them with the aim of uh, taking them down. And by that time, really, the subversive groups were composed, uh, that group was composed of basically anyone that J. Edgar Hoover personally didn't like or didn't want to see uh, having power. So, of course, it started, that idea started to expand and expand until it was no longer people who were uh, plotting immediate threats to the U.S. government, if it ever really was those people. It was now people who were attempting to organize at the community level or to affect actual change in the communities. And so it was, of course, that the FBI was involved heavily in uh, working against the anti-war movement in the 1960s and all of the groups that were associated with that. And, of course, the radical black activists who had that crazy idea of not only attempting to get civil liberties, but perhaps even to construct an alternative system to the U.S. uh, government-approved and mandated system that was in place at the time. Well, of course, such radical subversion had to be subverted itself by the FBI, and so was 
was born such things as the counterintelligence program, COINTELPRO, which people may or may not know the details and specifics of. I'll put a link in the show notes to a time uh, when we did an entire podcast on COINTELPRO and what it was really about and how it functioned and operated. But as part of that broad campaign against the radical subversives, quote-unquote, of the 60s, perhaps no incident looms larger in that, and no incident is more important for us to document today when it comes to the FBI and its involvement in these things, than the assassination of Fred Hampton. People learn by example. I think I don't think anybody has an argument with that. I think that when Huey P. Newton said that people learn basically by observation and participation, I think that everybody caught on to that. So what we're saying very simply is that if they learn by observation and participation, that we need to do more acting than we need to do writing. And I think the Black Panther Party's doing that. That we didn't talk about a Breakfast for Children program, we've got more. Come on in, little brother. Come on in, little sister. Y'all can sit down and get something to eat. Sisters and brothers. The new Breakfast for Children program soon attracted the attention of the FBI. Claiming the program served to indoctrinate children, the Bureau directed field offices to, quote, formulate specific counterintelligence techniques to disrupt this nefarious activity, unquote. The FBI stepped up its efforts to recruit blacks to infiltrate the Black Panther Party. My recruitment by the FBI was very efficient, very simple, really. Um, I'd stolen a car and uh, went joyriding over the state limit. And um, they had a potential case against me, and I was looking for an opportunity to uh, work it off. And um, a couple of months later, that opportunity came when uh, uh, FBI agent Roy Mitchell asked me to uh, go down to the local office of the Black Panther Party and try to uh, gain membership. In a report made public in the summer of 1969, FBI Director Hoover declared the Black Panther Party the number one threat to the internal security of the United States. I think, frankly, that he overstated the, uh, the concern, the, the, the real concern, that the Black Panthers were to the country. Uh, uh, I think it was legitimate for him to state that uh, they were a violent and unlawful element. But uh, referring to them as the most dangerous or most important, and I don't remember exactly the words he used, the greatest threat to, to the United States at that time, I think, was an overstatement. The police community is a, sort of a built-in reward and punishment system of its own. And you get a lot of rewards when you, when you go after who the boss says is the bad guy and you get him. And I think what um, J. Edgar Hoover was able to do was to give police officers the impression that it was okay. It was open season. You didn't have to worry about uh, the law. You didn't have to worry about the difference in uh, the executive branch of government and the judicial branch of government. Um, I think what he, in effect, said is, is, is it's our ball game, guys. We've got the authority. Uh, uh, we have the capacity. Uh, let's crush them. We, yes, we do defend our offices and we do defend our homes. This is a constitutional right. Everybody has nothing funny about that. The only reason they get mad at the Black Panther Party when they do it is for the simple reason that we're political. And they don't want to admit this. There are a lot of young organizations around, but we are a political organization. We're an organization that understands that politics is nothing but war without bloodshed and war is nothing but politics with bloodshed. On November 19th, 
FBI agent Roy Mitchell drew a floor plan of Hampton's apartment based on information supplied by informant O'Neill. On December 4th, at 4.45 in the morning, 14 policemen, nine white and five black, raided the apartment. Deborah Johnson, eight months pregnant, was asleep in the back bedroom next to Fred Hampton. The first thing I remember after Fred and I had went to sleep was being awakened by somebody shaking Fred while we were laying in bed, saying, Chairman, Chairman, wake up, the pigs are vamping, the pigs are vamping. Uh, this person that was in the room with me kept shouting out, we have a pregnant sister in here, stop shooting. Eventually the shooting stopped and they said we could come out. I remember crossing over Fred and telling myself over and over, be real careful, don't stumble, they'll try to shoot you. Just be real calm, watch how you walk, keep your hands up, don't reach for anything, don't even try to close your robe. When I was in the kitchen, I heard a voice, an unfamiliar voice say, he's barely alive or he'll barely make it. Then the shooting started back again. Then I heard the same unfamiliar voice say, he's good and dead now. And I knew in my mind, they would, I assumed they were talking about Fred. And I knew when I left out of there, I couldn't look towards the room. Party leaders Mark Clark and Fred Hampton were killed in the raid. Four of the seven surviving occupants of the apartment were wounded. All were charged with assault and attempted murder. When they locked me up at the police station, I kept begging them for a call, to make one call. I called, I think, the office, the Black Panther office, and I spoke to Bobby Rush, and he told me that Fred was dead. Fred had been killed. And I remember uh, walking out of the office and, uh, and looking through a little clearing over on the, ne the next block, which was right in front of uh, the Monroe Street address, and seeing a lot of <clears throat> police cars over there. And um, at that time, Bobby Rush came to the office. Uh, he had just come from over there, or maybe the coroner's office. In any case, we walked back over there, and uh, we both were speechless. We just walked through the house and and saw where what had taken place and where he died, and it was it was shocking. And then I was, you know, I just began to realize that the information that I supplied leading up to that moment had facilitated that raid. I knew that indirectly uh, I had contributed and I felt it and I felt bad about it. And then I got mad. You know, I had, uh, and then I had to conceal those feelings, which made it worse. I couldn't, I couldn't say anything. I just had to, continue to play the role. FBI headquarters authorized payment of a $300 bonus to informant William O'Neill for, quote, uniquely valuable services which he rendered over the past several months, unquote. 
Sadly, the fact that Hoover and the FBI abused their institutional privileges to assist police departments in the outright cold-blooded murder of American citizens will not come as a surprise to many in the listening audience, and that is a sad reflection of the fact that so much of the American public has become used to the FBI uh, being a self-proclaimed highest law enforcement authority in the land, which itself is a reckless, wanton criminal institution run by and for the privilege of criminals themselves. And no matter how much of that information is exposed or comes to light, the institution as a whole never seems to suffer any losses for the exposure of that information. Well, on that note, if the uh, the stakes were that serious back in the 1960s, perhaps some might think, well, that was a bygone era, a different era of American politics. And certainly, J. Edgar Hoover is no longer the, the director of the Bureau, and things have moved on since then. The Bureau as a whole has developed and learned from the lessons of the past. Or so the mainstream establishment media would like you to believe and then go back to sleep and continue watching Hollywood tripe churned out by like the likes of Clint Eastwood uh, for your sources of news and information. Unfortunately, for those of us living in reality, we know that in this age of terror, the institutional criminality of the FBI has only become all that much more apparent and all that much more serious. And we can trace this back at the very least to the onset of the age of terror in the United States with the first bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993. And it has become, it has entered into alternative media folklore that it was, uh, this was a plot that was in every way, stage, shape, and form engineered by the FBI through its informant, uh, who was actually in on the plot to create the bomb. This, as so many other pieces of information, is based in reality, but gets some of the key facts wrong. So for those who are interested in the conversations between the FBI informant and his handler, John Antichev, they are available online. I've played them on the on the Corbett Report before, so I will include some links so you can find out more about that, including my own reporting on it in the past. But I will also include a link to a previous conversation we had with Tom Secker of InvestigatingTheTerror.com, where he corrected some of the misconceptions about that entire plot, including the fact that the FBI informant did not himself personally make the bomb that did end up getting used in the WTC 1993 explosion. That bomb ended up getting made by Ramzi Youssef whoever that really is, and that's a fascinating story for another day. But at any rate, there is uh, some slight complication to the idea that the FBI actually created the bomb that went off in the, in the World Trade Center. There's some disconnect there, and I hope people will, will go into the actual documents and, and start researching that for themselves, because there is actually a bigger story to, to all of that. But at any rate, certainly the FBI was involved and could have cracked the circle that uh, that did perpetrate the bombing months before it ever got around to doing the bombing, if only they had used their sources correctly and blah, blah, blah. We can go for that incompetence theory again. But again, there are, of course, the people in the institutional power in the FBI who do want these attacks to occur. And that has been demonstrated time and time again by whistleblowers like Sibel Edmonds and just for those who haven't seen, I did recently uh, conduct the second part of our Gladio interview, so I would really suggest people go and listen to that right now. That's available on CorbettReport.com. But turning to the WTC 1993 explosion and its ramifications, at least one of the fascinating stories and very disturbing stories to come out of that as it relates to the FBI investigation of that event 
came from Dr. Frederick Whitehurst, the supervisory special agent in charge of the FBI crime lab from 1986 to 1998, which you'll note was that exact window of time when the FBI not only engaged in the WTC 1993 investigation, but the OKC bombing investigation, which was the largest FBI investigation to date at that time. So uh, Dr. Frederick Whitehurst had the uh, front row center seats to see the way that this was being investigated and to be one of the key linchpins in the investigation itself into uh, the chemical explosive residues that were being examined to, or some of the chemical residues at any rate, that were being examined to see if they could link them uh, to the, the bombs and the perpetrators of these crimes. Well, Dr. Whitehurst ended up becoming an FBI whistleblower, and his story is an extremely important one because it shows institutional systemic fraud within the FBI crime lab, at least during the time when he was there, and he has since gone on to found a project which documents further abuses in the FBI crime lab, some really horrific ones. So I will suggest you go and turn to a conversation that I had with Dr. Whitehurst a couple of years ago on that note, but let's listen to a short sample from that conversation where we talk about a fascinating example of some of the wanton criminality and and, uh, uh, perjury that he saw in his time at that crime lab, where he was pressured to try to pin the bombing of the WTC 1993 on urea nitrate explosives, a very rare type of explosive, and based on extremely flimsy evidence, evidence that he showed, he demonstrated conclusively, would not stand up in a court of law, but he was still pressured to go along with the conclusion that this was a urea nitrate, nitrate bomb that could be used to pin on the FBI's prime suspects. When a urea nitrate explosive um, is detonated, it yeah, the urea nitrate breaks into urea and nitrate. Nitrate ions, urea is out there. And we found high concentrations of urea at the World Trade Center. And we found urea nitrate explosive at, at a bomb-making factory, which we could point back to the, uh, the folks at the, um, <coughs> that were the suspects. And um, I wrote a report that we found urea nitrate ions, and that was consistent with the presence of a urea nitrate-based explosive. However, it was also consistent with um, the urea, which is used on the streets of New York at the time, is a bio-friendly ice melter. Nitrate ions, which are in the um, acid rain belt, Urea is in sewage. It's in. It's it's coming out of your fingers right now. It's a you know. It's something that you. It, it's in urine. Uh, sewage mains burst in the crime scene. You know, as a result of the explosion, World Trade Center. FBI management um, ordered my boss to tell me to take those alternative explanations for the data out of my report. I don't remember the day very well. It was raining. It was dreary out on uh, on uh, E Street behind the FBI building. I was looking out the window, and I told my boss, well, they can just fire me. I'm not going to lie in this report. I'm going to lie in a court of law. Well, ultimately, they just fired me because they needed somebody to lie. But um, another individual in the lab decided to just come in and give them the answer they wanted. And um, when he when he put himself in that position in order to convince our managers that these things were true, 
Steve Burmeister, um, my partner at the time, and I um, made some samples and told the fellow they came from the crime scene. One of them was uh, <coughs> was actually urine. I uh, collected my own urine in a beaker and dried it down and extracted it with uh, acetone and turned that sample over to this fellow. And then uh, Steve Burmeister mixed urea nitrate or urea fertilizer and ammonium nitrate and gave it to the guy. And his response in detecting these things was, okay, we got them now. That was urea nitrate bomb. And then we went to our manager and said, oh, here's the problem. And this is what's going to catch you when you get to court. Um, this guy's ready to declare a urea nitrate bomb. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's not trained in explosive analysis. He doesn't understand chemistry. He doesn't even have a degree in chemistry. And yet he's being declared as your chief chemist, and you're going to put him up front to make a point that's going to blow this case all apart, and it's going to show the government's going to lie in court. And so we told the manager what we did. The manager absolutely blew up at us. We couldn't, we, we, we were astonished. What, what do you mean? You know, I'm not going to uh, embarrass my chief chemist, and don't you ever do anything like this again. Well, you know, um, Mike Isikoff at the, uh, at the Newsweek magazine at the time wrote the incident up that I was so frustrated at management, I got a beaker and urinated in it. And that's where he stopped. It made me look sort of like a fool. But that's what, you know, I, you know, I, I, uh, Excuse me, I chide Mike about that all of these years when he calls me every once in a while. That isn't what happened. That is What happened was we showed that this individual, without any realization of what, he was, what his data meant, was willing to make a uh, statement in a court of law that was completely false, completely, and would have made that, would have very much threatened that prosecution or that case. Kind of gives a whole new meaning to pissing off the FBI, doesn't it? Sorry, I had to go there. At any rate, Dr. Whitehurst's story is absolutely fascinating, and sadly, it does not end there. In fact, a very similar scene was to play, it out, play itself out just a couple of years later in the same crime lab, which was investigating the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah building, which was eventually pinned on Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols. And that bombing supposedly was the result of an ammonium nitrate fuel oil bomb that was basically cooked up by Nichols and McVeigh the day before the bombing itself, and which accounted for all of the damage which we saw at the Murrah building, according to the official story. Now, those who have looked into that story know that it could not possibly have been a single ANFO bomb that accounted for that level of damage, and... On that note, I'll put in links, for example, to the investigation conducted by Benton K. Pardon and others that conclusively proved that. But at any rate, that was the official story. And similarly, Dr. Whitehurst and his, uh, his fellows in the FBI crime lab were pressured to try to finger the, uh, the culprit as ammonium nitrate, as being one of the chemical explosive residues that was found at the scene. And he has, unfortunately, a very similar story about that. So whether it's urea nitrate at the WTC 1993 or the ammonium nitrate at the uh, Oklahoma City bombing uh, site, unfortunately, similar political pressures were placed on the crime lab and the people working there to basically fudge the facts and to make a case that wasn't makeable at that point. And it just goes to show the rampant criminality, once again, in the crime labs, which, ironically enough, are supposed to be solving the crimes, not committing them. And unfortunately, this is a pattern that repeats itself into the current era and really defines a lot of the 
police investigative work committed by the FBI in the War on Terror. And turning to that OKC bombing of 1995 and the investigation thereof, which I noted was the largest FBI investigation to that point, and which uh, resulted in the largest manhunt in federal history to that point for John Doe No. 2, the accomplice to Timothy McVeigh, who was seen by literally dozens of witnesses with McVeigh both that morning and in the days and weeks prior to the bombing, uh, and resulted in a huge manhunt, the largest in American history to that point, and was eventually called off by the FBI because, well, didn't Turns out we were wrong. He never existed, despite the fact that witnesses have attested that there was uh, footage of the Alfred P. Murrah building that day that shows not just Timothy McVeigh, but Timothy McVeigh and an accomplice, John Doe number 2, pulling up in the rider truck to the building that morning. But in the investigation for and the manhunt for John Doe number 2, one of the people who were picked up was Kenneth Trenadu, someone who corresponded in many physical uh, respects to the description that was given out of John Doe number 2. And Kenneth Trenadu ended up dying in federal custody through what was described as suicide, but in fact was a vicious torture and beating. And unfortunately, yes, there is evidence of this, and you can go and look at the pictures, etc., online and listen to the story as told by his brother, lawyer Jesse Trenadu, who has now for decades been trying to get the truth about what happened to his brother. And that has led him into the heart of the OKC story and its investigation, because that is the heart of the cover-up, through which, uh, uh, which eventually resulted tangentially, as it turns out, in the death of his brother. And uh, we've had several conversations with Jesse Trenadu. He's appeared on other programs besides. So just type his name into a search engine. Find out more about Jesse Trenadu. I'll include some links to some of our previous conversations because his story is such a crucial part of what happened at OKC. And he's gotten so many of the records of what happened there. But it's some of the records that he has not received from the FBI that are perhaps the most interesting, including the records of that surveillance video, which, again, witnesses have attested, does show the moment when the rider truck pulls up to the Alfred P. Murrah building. Surely the most important physical evidence that would be possible to produce in such an investigation, but which was never produced in court, and which the FBI claims it can't find. It cannot find any of the surveillance footage. A few years ago, they came out to say, hey, we found some of this surveillance footage, and it turned out that it was footage from around the Murrah building, some of the businesses surrounding the Murrah building, and in every single case in the exact places where you would have been able to see the rider truck driving by, at those exact moments, all of these different tapes along the route, more several of them, all happen to uh, go blank at, at that exact window of time in which the rider truck would have been passing. And uh, this was explained by saying, well, those tapes were being changed. Apparently, all these different tapes in different locations run by different companies were being changed at the same time, which just happened to be the time that the rider truck was passing. Well, quite an interesting coincidence. And it was it's in his ongoing and continuing search for more records about this and perhaps even the uncovering of the actual surveillance tapes themselves, although I'm not personally holding my breath that the FBI will ever, ever willingly cough that up. But at any rate, in his ongoing legal attempts to pry this from the, the grip of the FBI, Jesse Trinidou has un- uncovered some very interesting ideas about, well, the ways that the FBI takes criminal investigatory records that might be problematic for the institution and its allies, and, well, puts them into a magic uh, memory hole where they are never seen or heard from again. 
And this is a fascinating story. It's one that I covered in the uh, Boiling Frogs Post eye-opener report from last year. So let's take a listen to this report, actually from 2011, I should say. So let's take a listen to this report talking about the idea of zero files. Welcome. This is James Corbett with your eye-opener report from BoilingFrogsPost.com. And now for the real news. A recent court case in Utah has uncovered yet more evidence that the FBI is hiding key documents from the public by placing them in a separate, hitherto unknown electronic storage medium known as an S-Drive. The fact that this drive was previously unknown has raised the specter that the FBI are using it as a place to hide requests for sensitive documents through the Freedom of Information Act. Now, a federal judge has given the FBI until the end of the month to explain what the S-Drive is, how it is being used, and whether it contains key documents related to the case in question. The case concerns Salt Lake City-based lawyer Jesse Trenadu, who has been investigating the death of his brother Kenneth Trenadu at an Oklahoma federal transfer facility in 1995. The government has maintained his brother's death was a suicide by hanging, despite the fact that his brutalized corpse revealed him to have been beaten to death with cuts and bruises all over his body. Numerous irregularities in the wake of Trinidu's death were suggestive of a cover-up, from the government's unprecedented offer to cremate the body before it was sent to the family at its own expense, to the fact that the coroner was not allowed to examine the cell until it had been washed, to the fact that the visitor logs from the facility on the night of the death have been destroyed. Subsequent investigations uncovered leaked documents showing that the cover-up went all the way up the chain of command to Eric Holder, currently Obama's Attorney General. Originally baffled by the extent of the cover-up, several tips, including one from Timothy McVeigh himself, led Jesse Trenadu to the understanding that his brother had been transferred to an Oklahoma transfer facility because he fit the description of the so-called John Doe No. 2 in the Oklahoma City bombing case. Since that time, Trenadu has been suing the FBI to try to pry more information about the OKC investigation from the agency's vaults. Among the documents he is pursuing are the surveillance tapes from the Murrah building itself, which were being stored off-site and thus were not damaged in the blast. These tapes, which sources connected to the investigation have told the LA Times and other major media outlets that they have seen, are purported to show the approach of the rider truck to the building and also show Timothy McVeigh's accomplice getting out of the truck. Under the Freedom of Information Act, the FBI is not required to say if a document exists only that they searched their database and found no records responsive to the request. If these documents are placed in an external or disconnected storage drive, however, the agency can, can ensure that they will never show up in any FOIA request. In fact, the FBI has been known to have used this very technique in the past. Going under such names as June Files, Zero Files, and iDrive, the agency has a long and documented history of placing key evidence in special compartmentalized files that are reviewed by senior officials before the information is placed into the Bureau's official flat files. Joining me earlier this week to discuss the history and significance of the FBI's secret storage drives was attorney Jesse Trenadu. It's important to know that in most matters the FBI opens and of course called an official file and if someone is under investigation for a crime and eventually charged with a crime the official file is supposed to contain all of the evidence, both incriminating evidence and exculpatory evidence. And this 
file is turned over to defense counsel. Also, when someone files a Freedom of Information Act request, it is the official file the FBI searches for records and documents to produce. Starting, and I'm sure it existed before this time, but I learned during the course of this fight that during the 1970s and 1980s, the FBI had what was called a June file, and I don't J-U-N-E, and I don't know if that's an acronym for something, uh, another name or whatever, but the June file was where they placed evidence and other materials and information they did not want to disclose to defense counsel in criminal cases or make public through a Freedom of Information Act request. The June files came to light in the late 1980s as a result of a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit. I next found uh, that and, and uncovered the fact that after the June files were revealed, the FBI implemented another evidence hiding system called the Zero Files, Z-E-R-O, and this served the same function. Information, evidence, documents, other materials that the FBI did not want to turn over to defense counsel in criminal cases or make public through a Freedom of Information Act request went into the zero file and just disappeared. And so if you filed a Freedom of Information Act request, uh, the FBI would look at the official file and come back and report there was nothing there that you might be searching for if it was this type of information. After the zero files were revealed, I found out that they, and as a result of my lawsuit that they implemented, or implemented rather, excuse me, the FBI implemented a new system called the iDrive. And it served the same function. As the June files two decades ago, the zero files a decade ago, and the iDrive was implemented apparently in the late 1990s and into the, the 21st century. So we're in court. And I am arguing in, in the fact that the FBI has this elaborate system, a continuing, uh, evolving, living system almost for hiding, hiding the truth, hiding evidence, hiding embarrassing information or whatever it is that, that they do not want the public or defense counsel to see in criminal cases. And so I reached the point of the iDrive, and suddenly the attorney for the the FBI uh, interrupts and, and advises the court that the iDrive is irrelevant. And the judge says, why? And the attorney says, because we've replaced it with the S-Drive. And that caused all kinds of commotion in the courtroom because that, to my knowledge, is the first time there's been a public acknowledgement by the FBI that they do now have an S-Drive. And part of the order the judge issued is by June 30th of this year, the FBI has to also report back to him the function of the iDrive and S-Drive and whatever other drives they have out there that may be used or are being used to conceal. Critics of the FBI have long noted how the Bureau under J. Edgar Hoover's leadership sanitized files to hide potentially embarrassing information about the FBI and its agents from the public. 
In a conversation with the Corbett Report last week, Colleen Rowley, the former Privacy Act coordinator at the Minneapolis FBI field office and noted FBI whistleblower, confirmed the sordid history of the FBI's attempts to con conceal information from the public and revealed other methods that keep key records from being accessed through FOIA requests. The commentators who are dredging up this history of J. Edgar Hoover and always wanting to sanitize the files before a case would go to court are absolutely correct. We had a huge scandal with the Timothy McVeigh prosecution in Oak Bomb, and that case came about, the, the scandal came about uh, actually in the summer of 2001, right before uh, the 9-11 attacks. Uh, that came about because in that case they had gone to this new, more open discovery, but that's not the, the FBI's normal procedures. Normally, the, the commentators are totally correct. The FBI had the idea that non-relevant information uh, would not be provided. And certainly this is embarrassing in FOIA cases. I mean, they're, by law they're required uh, to give out an entire file. Well, one of the ways to get around not giving out an entire file afterwards is say you identified several uh, wrong uh, suspects. And you can see this in the high-profile cases of the anthrax killer where they had to pay $5 million to, to somebody for being Hatfield, for being identified as a, as a suspect. Uh, the Richard Jewell case in, in, the, uh, in the Atlanta bombing. So those cases where they have identified even completely wrong persons, it's embarrassing afterwards to, to give out all that information. So the FBI tries to find ways uh, to file uh, documents that they're not considered relevant. And, and I don't know the whole um, context of these uh, I drives and S drives where there's been different information, but I know that's consistent with past track record of putting information into control files that, uh, that so it does not pertain to an actual uh, case classification. And the other thing, that, of course, that the FBI does in Freedom of Information is they have a very antiquated system that's not consistent with word searching uh, capabilities. So if, if somebody asked about a case, they actually go on the old-fashioned notion that, that the name that you're asking for has to be in the title of the case as opposed to just doing a word search. There's all kinds of things that they've never really been called on, and, and uh, freedom of information activists really do need to uh, pursue this because the FBI's compliance needs to be brought up to date instead of, uh, you know, still back in the old J. Edgar Hoover era. Spokespersons for the Bureau have so far refused to comment to the press about the S-Drive story, citing the ongoing litigation. The court order requires them to present a full explanation of the use of these document storage systems to federal court by June 30th. For more on this story, stay tuned to BoilingFrogsPost.com and CorbettReport.com. This video is part of a new weekly video news series. Future editions of this series will be available to subscribers of BoilingFrogsPost.com. For more news and commentary from James Corbett, please visit CorbettReport.com. Any American citizen who is not outraged at the idea that the FBI has been getting away with this for so long is not paying attention, so hopefully more people will become aware of this and will spread the information about how the FBI is 
doing things like that and also blackballing FOIA requests and other things that we've gone over in eye-opener reports in the past. So once again, I'll invite people to check the show notes for this episode for more on all of that. But moving right along, as we are unfortunately limited by time here on the program, we're going to move on forward into the 9-11 war on terror police state that's been enacted and enabled and has really fostered the growth of not only the FBI, but its sister agencies in the Department of Homeland Security and other aspects of the domestic intelligence surveillance grid including now, of course, the NSA and its warrantless wiretaps. And uh, there's, again, too much to possibly say in a single podcast episode about all of that. So let's concentrate on one very specific investigation as it provides something of a window into all of this. And uh, once again, I'll note that this particular investigation and the, uh, the, the officer involved is mentioned in my recent conversation with Sibel Edmonds, the FBI whistleblower who people should know best, should be acquainted with by now. So once again, please go to CorbettReport.com and listen to that recent interview, which will be being made as a video later this weekend. So please keep your eye on YouTube.com slash CorbettReport or CorbettReport.com for that. But let's turn to an article that I wrote, well, a few years ago now, back in July of 2009, called 9-11 and Cyber Terrorism. Did the real Cyber 9-11 happen on 9-11? And this is about the uh, the fascinating case of P-Tech. It's something that I've talked about many times in the past and will continue to talk about because it is one of the linchpin pieces of the 9-11 puzzle that is almost universally ignored by 9-11 researchers, so I will continue talking about it. And in this article about P-Tech that I'll invite you to read in its entirety, we talk about one of the investors who gave $5 million of the $20 million of startup money for this firm, which developed enterprise architecture software that had backdoors into all of the most sensitive government agencies and large corporations that one could possibly want access to if one was looking to, well, say, disrupt the communication between the FAA and the Pentagon on and NORAD on 9-11. So the PTEX customers included DARPA and the FBI, the Secret Service, the White House, the FAA, NATO, IBM, Booz Allen, Hamilton, etc., etc. It's a laundry list of who's who in Washington and Virginia. So uh, I would suggest people acquaint themselves with PTEC if they haven't already. But part of that entire PTEC story is the story of the investigation into Yasin Al-Qadi, one of the investors in PTEC, and how that investigation was stifled. So reading from that section of that article entitled Stifled Investigations, it reads, quote, In the late 1990s, Robert Wright, an FBI special agent in the Chicago field office, was running an investigation into terrorist financing called Vulgar Betrayal. From the very start, the investigation was hampered by higher-ups. The investigation was not even allocated adequate computers to carry out its work. Through Wright's foresight and perseverance, however, the investigation managed to score some victories, including seizing $1.4 million in U.S. funds that traced back to Yasin al-Qadi. Wright was pleased that when a senior agent was assigned to help investigate the founder and the financier of P-Tech, but the agent did no work and merely pushed papers during his entire time on the case. Shortly after the 1998 African embassy bombings, vulgar betrayal began to uncover a money trail linking Al-Qadi to the attack. According to Wright, when he proposed a criminal investigation into the links, his supervisor flew into a rage saying, You will not open criminal investigations. I forbid any of you. You will not open criminal investigations against any of these intelligence subjects. Wright was taken off the vulgar betrayal investigation one year later, and the investigation itself was shut down the following year. 
In the aftermath of 9-11, Indira Singh, a risk management consultant for J.P. Morgan, was looking for enterprise architecture software to implement the next generation of risk management at the financial juggernaut. Impressed by their client list, Singh invited P-Tech to demonstrate their software. It wasn't long before she began discovering the connections between P-Tech and international terrorist financing. She worked exhaustively to document and uncover these links in an effort to persuade the FBI in Boston to open their own investigation into P-Tech, but she was told by one agent that she was in a better position to investigate this than someone inside the FBI. Despite the persistent efforts of Singh and the testimony of company insiders, the FBI did not inform any of the agencies contracting with P-Tech that there were concerns about the company or its software. End quote. Well, we'll leave it there, but the story, of course, does go on from there and involves Operation GreenQuest, the customs department uh, operation that that worked largely on the vulgar betrayal case notes and eventually raided P-Tech's offices with warning in advance and concluding the very same day as the raid that the company was completely above board. Anyways, it's a fascinating story, so I hope you will look into it if you haven't yet done so. But yes, suffice it to say, once again, the FBI is up to its eyeballs in covering up this investigation. And the links uh, into the terrorist financing that enable these types of events and which inevitably lead back to some of the key political players and figures in Washington who are then able to stifle the investigations. It's quite a vicious circle. And unfortunately, that is part of the defining operational mechanism of the FBI in the war on terror and its ability to cover up investigations at key and crucial moments to make sure that the real perpetrators never do get caught. And once again, that is a key point of discussion between myself and Sibel Edmonds in our most recent conversation. So once again, I'll urge you to go and listen to that conversation. Well, again, there's too much to possibly say about the FBI in its waging of the war of terror against Americans. Oh, I mean, the war on terror protecting Americans, whichever way you want to frame it. And uh, there's too much to possibly say, as we say in this uh, in this one podcast episode. But the defining trope that we've seen over the past decade is the FBI funding, training, equipping bunches of useless numbskulls who could barely tie their shoelaces and blaming them time and time again for grandiose plans which they could not have possibly even entertained the notions of without active support of the FBI and basically busting their own terror plots to their own self-aggrandizement. And this is uh, beyond a joke, it is beyond funny. Uh, it is now really sad that they continue the exact same modus operandi time and time and time again. And it is at that point where it is self-parodying. So, at the risk of repeating myself, once again, let's play my at least the clean and censored version, although you can get the uh, unclean and uncensored version also on YouTube, of my recent parody of this FBI meme of busting their own terror plots. Are you the head of a large homeland security bureaucracy whose funding depends on your supposed ability to foil large-scale terror plots in spectacular fashion? An attorney general in hot water over knowingly selling guns to Mexican drug lords that resulted in thousands of murders? A White House official who's worried that the public is just no longer scared by turban boogeymen? Well, today on the How To Podcast, we tell you how to foil your own terror plot. In order to bust a fake terrorist cell that you yourself funded and created, you'll need a bunch of total f- with intelligence in the bottom quartile, preferably homeless people, as they can more easily be bribed with food and rent money. Money for bribing, equipping, and supporting your fake terror cell, although this can obviously come from the taxpayer funds you have access to. 
an FBI or government informant, and a suck lapdog corporate media that will breathlessly report everything you say as gospel truth without the slightest bit of skepticism. Once you've assembled these ingredients, you're ready to begin setting up and then busting your very own fake terror threat. Step 1. First, gather your team of low-grade morons at the local bus station or abandoned warehouse. The suspects are Midwesterners who said they wanted to strike out against corporate America. Federal prosecutors say this man, Rezwan Fardas, a 26-year-old American citizen, wanted to help al-Qaeda kill Americans. Well, Don and Christine, federal investigators say the suspects are four men with a shared hatred for America. Although the seven suspects are described as al-Qaeda-inspired, law enforcement sources tell CBS News there is no evidence tying them to any terrorist group. Step 2. Next, give your crack squad of intellectually challenged a pre-scripted terror plot to aim at. Keep in mind, the more ridiculously implausible the plot is, the more likely it will be to generate those much-needed headlines when you later swoop in and pretend to bust them. They plan to blow up the heavily traveled span over the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. The alleged plot is chilling. Fardis wanted to pack large remote-controlled model planes with C-4 explosives and crash them into the Pentagon and U.S. Capitol. Allegedly led by Narsil Batiste, the group had visions of raising an Islamic army pledged to Osama bin Laden, and according to the government's indictment, was conspiring to provide material support to al-Qaeda and wage a full ground war against the United States. And though it reads like the pages of a Hollywood script, the impact would have been very real, and many lives would have been lost. Step 3. Finally, have your pre-planted FBI agent or government informant provide this band of patsy troglodytes with all of the supplies and equipment needed to proceed with the fake plan, regardless of whether or not they would ever be able to actually acquire any of these provisions without your help. The FBI began its investigation last year after it says Fardis told an informant about his desire to wage jihad against the U.S. The FBI sent undercover agents posing as al-Qaeda recruiters to meet Fardis. Prosecutors played video of Hussein and four alleged would-be bombers planting what they thought were explosives outside of Jewish houses of worship in the Bronx in May of last year. The devices were fake and supplied by the FBI. Aided by an informant posing as an al-Qaeda operative, federal agents captured these grainy images of the group's meetings held in this rundown warehouse in one of Miami's poorest neighborhoods. Step 4. Now go in and arrest the clueless you funded, trained, and equipped. If you've done everything just right, the government toady media will report everything you say about this ridiculously unlikely terror plot as if they were golden jewels of truth dripping from the mouth of Jesus himself. U.S. officials say they've smashed an Iranian plot to bomb Saudi Arabia's ambassador in Washington with paid help from a Mexican drug cartel. Motivated by hate and bent on killing their neighbors. Investigators say the four men from our area used their faith to justify planned attacks on houses of worship. John Miller is joining us now. John, how does blowing up the bridge further their fight against corporate America? Well, it's a little muddled, Scott, but their theory was that, A, it would force the government to put security on every bridge in the country, and that, that would cost money, and that, B, it would mess up traffic and keep people from getting to work at those big companies. A lot of people say these guys who wanted to blow up the Sears Tower and FBI buildings are just a collection of misfits and wannabes, nothing to worry about. I think this is actually an update of the Islamic extremist plan for the perfect day. Pro tip. If anyone from the media bothers to press you on any of the actual details of your fantasy scenario, admit everything, change the subject, and pray that no one notices. The uh, 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 
man to have any actual contact with any members of Al-Qaeda that you know of? Any... The, the, answer that, the answer to that is no. Did you find any explosives, weapons? And you raise a, a good point. This has been a public service announcement from the friends of the FBI, DHS, and DOD. Helping to keep America stocked with would-be non-terrorists who can't tie their own shoelaces since 9-11-2001. Because ignorance is strength. Sometimes you have to laugh in order not to cry or not to scream or not to fly into a rage and pull all your hair out. But at any rate, that is my contribution to uh, a better public understanding of what's happening in this age of terrorism, perpetrated and fostered and funded and equipped and trained and then busted by the FBI time and again. And it's the ones that they end up just not busting in time that are the ones that the public has to be worried about for their own personal safety. So there's, again, too much to possibly say about the FBI as an institution in one podcast episode, but I at least hope we've touched on a couple of the main ideas, which is one, that Hoover was very much on the ball when it came to the uh, the maxim that knowledge is power, and he very much used his knowledge and leverage over politicians to maintain his power over them, and thus demonstrating the entire political paradigm as it continues to exist to this day, and as we've seen time and time again, every time a politician steps outside the lines, or even threatens to do so, they can be brought down exactly in uh, three and a half seconds by basically unleashing the hounds, and one can look, for example, at things like the Spitzer Affair to see how that type of thing can be perpetrated. But again, this happens time and time again, and it just goes to show that those who collect the information illegally or otherwise on these politicians are the ones who control these politicians. And the other main idea to take out of today's episode is that war is the health of the state, and terror and boogeymen are the health of these investigative agencies. So as long as we continue to give more power and more money and more funding and more agents to organizations like the FBI in the wake of every terror attack the more these terror attacks will be perpetrated and will be either allowed to, fostered to, or funded to happen by the agencies that stand to benefit from their their execution. So again, that's just a sad precept, and it's a very basic point, but one that needs to be drilled home time and time again as it continues to be Unfortunately, something that tricks a lot of the public time and time again, every time there's a spectacular event, we're asked to give more money, more funding, and more power to these agencies, which themselves are at the heart of so many of these problems. Again, there's a lot more to explore, so I hope you will follow the links from today's show notes, and uh, there's a lot of uh, other things that we haven't covered today that hopefully we will cover in the future. Once again, I will exhort you to go and listen to my recent interview with Sibel Edmonds, part two, part B of our uh, Gladio series that we're conducting right now, exploring some of the real information behind the war on terror paradigm. Absolutely fascinating stuff, so I hope you'll check that out. And once again, the Corbett Report is listener-supported, so if you do appreciate this information, I appreciate all of you out there supporting this uh, podcast and broadcast financially or otherwise, any way that you can. So go to CorbettReport.com for more details on that and to download the thousands of hours of media, which is commercial-free and freely available to download from there. That's going to do it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me. Looking forward to talking to you all again next week.
The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's International Forecaster Editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.